From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. This morning, our colleague John Wells talks with Anand Varma. He's a National Geographic Explorer and award-winning photographer about his new book, Invisible Wonders, Photographs of the Hidden World. Anand has devoted years of his life to developing innovative techniques, even building some of his own equipment to create unique and oftentimes surprising images of nature. Then we talk about the materials in our lives. How often, if ever, do we really consider the role of materials all around us and how have they affected us? Material scientist and engineer, author, and science evangelist Anissa Ramirez shares the history of these materials in her book, The Alchemy of Us. These guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. Our next guest is Anand Varma, National Geographic Explorer and award-winning photographer. Now, he's devoted years of his life developing innovative techniques, even building some of his own equipment to create unique and oftentimes surprising images of nature. Anand and more than 100 of his colleagues have contributed to his new book, Invisible Wonders, Photographs of the Hidden World. Anand Varma, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thanks so much, John. Great to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you on the program. And uh, maybe we can start with this. Your um, your book is uh, is divided into four chapters, size, time, light, and focus. Can you tell us about these chapters and how you organize the book? Sure. I wanted to bring audiences a sense of all the different ways that photography can extend our visual perception. So right off the bat, we tend to think about, oh, yeah, photographs can expand microscopic organisms. You know, we think about macro photography. And so that's what the chapter on size is about. It's very straightforward. Let's blow up these tiny creatures and look at them up close. But when I thought about it, I realized, you know, there are many other ways that photography can show us invisible details. So for example, the beats of a hummingbird's wings, that is something that moves too quickly for our eyes to see, but a camera can freeze time and show us those details. And then I thought, well, you know, there's ways that light itself, that photographers can use light to illuminate things that are invisible to us. So for example, the transparent larva of a flounder. This is something I've seen with my own eyes in the real world, and it's totally clear. You can see it's two tiny eyeballs, and the rest of its skin and its body is totally transparent, like an ice cube. But when it's lit up in a certain way, all of a sudden you can see its bones, you can see its fins, you can see the color of its skin. Uh, so light lets us see details that we wouldn't notice. And the last chapter on focus, you'll notice many of these images there. Uh, there's an ice climber, there's a scuba diver, there's a giant redwood tree. These are not microscopic things. They're not lightning fast motion. But the photographer has used their vision, has used their eye to focus our attention, to say, here is a messy scene that we would not really have appreciated. But if I can frame it in a certain way, if I can capture the right moment, if I can use uh, light and framing, I can isolate a subject in a messy world 
and get you to pay attention in a way that you may not have noticed with first glance. And so everything from a very literal microscopic image to a more abstract focusing of our attention, photography has all these ways to show us the world with fresh eyes. And all of you have worked so hard on putting these pictures together. Uh, what is it like when the final product comes together in the book that you just held up? You, you have that in your hands for the first time. How does that make you feel? It feels awesome. I mean, it's there's nothing quite like having a physical book in your hands and to be able to flip through at your own pace. I mean, it's a very different experience than looking at these images on a computer screen or on a tiny phone screen. I you really agree. get go through it at your own pace, get to linger, you get to really soak in all of the surprising details. And so many of these images, you discover new things every time you look at them. Yeah. And so I can look at these images a hundred times and see something new every single time. Yeah, and uh, in, in speaking about uh, how much time goes into these photos, one of your colleagues uh, submitted a photo of the human retina and it took 187 days, I believe it was 187, to just do the colorization uh, process. Uh, that's uh, that's a lot of detail. That really astounded me. Yeah, that's my friend Martin Eggerly, and mm -hmm. he is he was trained as a as a scientist, and he uses a really special kind of microscope, uh, scanning electron microscope, to take these incredibly high resolution images. And he told me that story of the human retina and how special it is to be able to observe this incredible structure that is so central to our own vision. He just said, I have to do justice to this thing. That's why he obsessed over it for almost half a year just to get the colors right in that image. And that speaks to the level of dedication of photographers who really care about showing the world and showing all of the magic and the wonder and the beauty that's all around us. Of course, this is a radio show, so it's really hard to describe this, but that image of the uh, human retina, I believe he, he said in the book, or you said in the book when you were interviewing him, that it was 120 million rods, 6 million cones. Uh, it's such a sophisticated piece of the human body. It's just amazing how complicated that whole thing is and how uh, extraordinary it is. That's, you know, one of the joys of working on this project and looking at these images, you know, each image stands on its own as a beautiful uh, thing to look at. But then when you read the caption, that's really when the magic starts. And it, it, it opens up the world of, of understanding and of context. And I love that interplay. It's like you look at this image and think, oh, I would love an, a frame of that in my bedroom. And, but once you understand what it is you're looking at, the level of beauty and the level of complexity really gives you a new way to relate, not just to that image, but to, to everything it represents. And so that that's really where the magic is. It's like understanding what you're looking at and the feeling of just awe and wonder. Like this is just the tiniest slice of our eyeball mm -hmm. that has so much detail. You can, you can not even comprehend all of it. And then you expand that to the rest of your body. And then you expand that to the rest of the world and the rest of the universe. It's like overwhelming how much there is to explore and to learn. And it's such a, an awesome feeling to contemplate 
the lifetime of discovery and exploration there there is the the, the millions of lifetimes of exploration there is left in this well, non, when i when, when i look at your pictures when i'm uh, out hiking when i'm just taking a simple walk with my dog i'm i'm reminded continually of the extraordinary symmetry of nature and uh there's a lot of science going on to make that symmetry, but it it also is obvious to me that the hand of God, whatever that might mean, is somehow involved in this whole thing. I mean, the the symmetry of your pictures, talking about the flounder, talking about the human retina, the 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 detail of that slime mold. I mean, it's just it's it's just incredible. I you know I think there's something very powerful that happens when we are confronted by something that is beyond our understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. You know when we are overwhelmed with this feeling that this is this doesn't make sense to me. I can't explain this. I don't know where this complexity comes from. That is a very powerful moment where it really forces us to stop and open our mind. I mean, I think we're we we learn to become so busy and we're filtering all of these distractions and we're just trying to get through the day and in it we're missing so much of the world around us. And so when we are confronted by these images and ideas and discoveries that are larger than us, it really forces us to stop and think about our place in the world. And I I really feel like that is the power of this book and the power of photography and the power of these images. Yeah, and I think you also mentioned in the book that we all have a tendency to um, line up more with things that are our size. And when you take something from the microscopic world and you blow it up so it's big enough so that it's there and, and you can't get away from it, I think I think that opens up uh, uh, us to new perspectives as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the goal, opening up to new perspectives. So... Um, how did this whole thing come together, you know, to curate a collection of of microscopic photographs from nature? I mean, w- was this a National Geographic assignment that was given to you? This was a collaboration with National Geographic. And mm-hmm. you know, we, we talked about this idea of what would a book about, you know, invisible worlds and invisible wonders look like. And I looked back at my own career and realized I have explored all of these themes in my own work. I started out as a macro photographer and really I think that goes back to my childhood kind of exploring the creeks and woods behind my house and and realizing like every rock you turn over every log you turn over there is something new there that you've never seen before yeah. you photograph it with a camera you blow up that snake or salamander or cricket and it's got features and details and beauty that that you didn't notice and so I started out as a macro photographer but then I started photographing bees and hummingbirds and bats and realizing, oh, you know, it's not just those small details, but the camera can play with time in a way that our own eyes and our brains can't do on their own. So there's really a time component. There's this light component. And so I I kind of drew these chapter ideas through my own work. And that's kind of how how this all came together. And you mentioned bees, and so I'd like to just go there for a moment. And uh, that's because uh, you said somewhere in the book that you used to think that science and photography were sort of mutually exclusive. And then you had this belief 
after seeing some of your photos that 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 your photography can inform science and there were some pictures that you took of some honeybees being born right out of the brood and th those had not been seen before uh can you can you talk about that a little bit yeah i mean speaking of this idea of photography and science being different worlds i grew up wanting to be a scientist and it was a huge struggle for me to to let go of that childhood dream to pursue photography it was this it, it felt like i was failing my 8 year old self it felt like i was leaving behind this this dream and it wasn't until the bee project where i made this time lapse film that show how humming, honey honeybees grow up inside the hive and national geographic published that and the scientists reached out to me and said, you know, we've been studying honeybee biology for decades, and we learn new things from your video. We learn new behaviors. We, we saw behaviors we didn't expect to see at that age of those bees. And that's when the light bulb went off and said, wow, I had thought that my job was to photograph the discoveries of others. Like I was just the communicator. I was just the messenger. And then it was that moment that I realized, wow, I actually can discover new things with my camera yeah like i could be kind of a scientist as well i don't have to leave behind this dream that i had as a kid i can bring that along with me and realize that science and photography are not mutually exclusive they're they're uh, synergistic they 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 build on each other i need to understand the science in order to take an interesting picture and if i'm successful at taking a novel new look at the world i can actually contribute to new discoveries as well so it's kind of a virtuous cycle where the science feeds the photography the photography feeds the science and that's what makes it so exciting for me and the honeybee was a great example can you give us any other examples of how your photography or your colleagues photography has informed science sure i work very closely with uh scientist chris clark who studies the movements of hummingbirds mm. i've been collaborating with him for well over a decade, almost 15 years now. And so the, the photographs that I take of, of his hummingbirds in the lab, he's able to use in his research papers. And he's able to see how the feathers lay on the bird's wings, on the bird's tail. And he studies how the hummingbirds make sounds with their feathers. And so he's able to understand the biomechanics, essentially how their bodies move and how their feathers move uh, better with, with my images. And similarly, when I collaborated with the a bat researcher, Rodrigo Medellin, he used some of the infrared images and videos I took of the bats that he studies to better understand their behavior. Right. And um, when you were talking about your colleague uh, that uh, had the picture of the, uh, of the retina, uh, you you talked about his technology that he uses. So he doesn't take a photograph. He's actually scanning. It's an electron scanning device. Yeah, essentially. It's not like the cameras that we have in our phones. It's not like the cameras that you load a roll of film into. It's a special kind of microscope that uses a focused electron beam, and it bounces, mm -hmm. it, bounces it off these tiny, really microscopic, really minuscule subjects, and it's able to uh, capture, it's still able to capture an image, it just does it with a different kind of technology. Okay, if you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Anand Barma. Now he's not just a photographer or a scientist, he is 
a National Geographic Explorer. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And uh, he has just uh, put together this book, Invisible Wonders, Photographs of the Hidden World. So what sort of feedback are you getting on this book so far? Uh, I'm getting great feedback. I, I especially um, feel great about those photographers who I've included who are writing to me saying how happy they were yeah. to be included alongside their colleagues. And so that means the world to me that the the images that I've curated here are um, are well received by the contributors. And then lots of people who are just you know surprised and delighted to see things that they never expected to see. And what is a National Geographic Explorer? And how how do you get tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, you're in? Uh, and, yeah. and, and how many of them are you? Well, I don't are know there? the exact number. Uh, it's, it's into the thousands at this point. And so you become a National Geographic Explorer by applying for a grant. And so if you receive a grant from the National Geographic Society, you are... Uh, designated as an explorer. There are a couple of other ways. They have a program called the Wayfinder Award that uh, you don't apply for, you're nominated for that. So that's another way to become an explorer. And, you know, one thing that explorers all share is just a sense of curiosity about the planet and yeah. a sense of desire to share knowledge and to educate others and to collectively help uh preserve what we have on this in this world right and uh national geographic is unique in that uh they only want raw uh images from you and then they may manipulate them in some way is that is that possible or true yeah it's it's kind of taking from the uh tradition of darkroom photography so back in the day of film there's ways in which you can brighten and darken an image yeah. and control saturation to a bit. And so that's what they stick to these days. You're not really allowed to add or remove objects in right. after the fact, uh, but they will take those raw images, those unmanipulated images, and then in order to translate them into a book or to a magazine or online, it takes different processes to get those colors to, to match. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, what is the National Geographic Wonder Lab and uh, how were you involved in the creation? Yeah. Wonder Lab was my idea. And this, it's a space that I've started here in Berkeley, California, where I live. And it combines a photography studio with a biology lab with a classroom. So it's these three threads of photography, science, and education, which are the three passions of my life, where I looked out in the world and I said, I can't find a place that does all three of these things. So I'm going to create one myself. And so I, I'm able to experiment with new ways of photographing the world. I'm able to collaborate with scientists along the way and then bring in others like high school classrooms and early career scientists, early career photographers who can uh, learn from the techniques that I'm developing. Yeah. Something the Kind of related, but uh, off on the side a little bit. And that's that I had a college professor who was an astrophysicist and he was, uh, he's pretty well known and he met with other people around the, around the country. And anytime he had a meeting and they were talking about some heady subject, he always tried to include an artist in that conversation so that as they were speaking, the artist was, was rendering some of the concepts and things that they were talking about. And he believed that it really helped to inform the conversation and move it forward. 
Yeah, I think that's 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 exactly right. It's it's there's so much complexity in the world that's hard to wrap our mind around, especially mm -hmm. if we haven't spent years or decades studying this uh, really specific subject. And so the role of a photographer or an artist is to take that complexity and condense it into something, translate it, interpret it, so that the rest of the world has some way to see it, to relate to it, to understand even just a piece of it. Um, you can't necessarily replace, you know, 10 years of work or research with a single image. But what I think these images do is give people just a little toehold, a little taste of what's out there. You know, it's not just about teaching people about amino acids and hummingbirds. Really, these this book and these images is about inspiring a broader sense of curiosity. So of here's just a little slice. Think about what you could learn if you went out there and and looked for yourself and and read for yourself and investigated for yourself. So this is really a, a call to action to look at the world in a new way, to pay attention more closely, to slow down and appreciate all that's around us. We talked about one of your colleagues, Martin, and the uh, human retina. Is uh, Are there any other uh, of your colleagues you'd like to highlight uh, some of their work? And, and talk oh about. yeah, I have a friend uh, Nathan Renfro uh, that who took this image of uh, diamond trigons. Yeah. And so this looks like a totally trippy, you know, uh, illustration of pyramids. And in fact, it is a close-up image of a diamond that has mm -hmm. this totally unique triangular structure within it. And he used a special microscopy technique to illuminate the structures of that. I really love his work. He's a gemologist based here in California as well. Um, there's several of his images in this book. There's a there's a technique that you sometimes use that I don't I don't understand. It's called focus stacking, and you did that when you had the young honeybee and some other photos that you've done. Can you tell us what focus stacking is? Yeah, this is a technique that I borrowed from uh, the science world, the scientist world, where you can photograph really, really tiny subjects. And what you do is you take a series of images that are all focused at a slightly different position, a slightly mm -hmm. different plane. And then you can use a computer to combine all of those images. And so, for example, the image that kicks off the size chapter is an image of a honeybee that I took with this technique. And what that does is it allows you to see details that you wouldn't be able to see with your own eyes. If you look through a microscope, those high magnification images, they, they, they limit you to just seeing a tiny slice of focus. And so this technique lets you see the three-dimensional shape ah. that uh, you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. Okay. So what technology is coming down the road that you're curious about, interested in uh, getting your hands on that might be able to uh, help you do your job better? You know, cameras are getting better every year. They're getting higher in resolution, especially higher in sensitivity. So you're able to see very low, low levels of illumination better. Um, there's new techniques being developed by scientists in the microscopy space every year too. And so I'm excited to learn new ways of harnessing polarized light, for example, as a way to see invisible structures. Mm -hmm. uh, and high-speed cameras that are able to slow down time even more than they ever have been before. So those are all techniques that I'm really excited to learn more about. Okay. 
And what one question do you have about nature that has not been answered yet that you'd like to have answered? You know, the, the, this is kind of a broader question, but it's really captured my imagination. I mean, you think about um, this, this started with the honeybee project where I saw these baby bees and I saw the adults, the babies look like little maggots and the adults are these winged hairy creatures. And I thought this is insane that one turns into the other they don't look yeah. anything alike and you think about any life form think about a chicken egg we all see eggs many of us have them in our fridge that doesn't look like a chicken somehow a chicken pops out of that you crack an egg on a pan that doesn't look like a chicken no. and yet somehow all of those cells all they all reorganize themselves every plant every mushroom every animal on the planet starts as a single cell and turns into this you know hairy fuzzy you know creature with hands and eyeballs and fingernails you know how does that happen that yeah. is the question that has really captured my imagination and that's where i have uh focused my attention at the wonder lab where in fact with chickens we're filming how chickens grow inside the eggshell we're doing the same thing with cuttlefish and mushrooms and butterflies and um trying to get at this question of like how does life take shape yeah, it's pretty heavy. Uh, it's uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Totally mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, so, what's your next project? I mean, you're 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 pretty busy promoting this and 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 doing your work. Do you have another project that you're working on? No, I mean the Wonder Lab is now now my sort of full time job, mm -hmm. and so I mentioned a couple of the creatures, the chickens and cuttlefish that we're raising there. That'll be the next photography project. And then we're kind of developing our school programs and our science collaborations along the way as well. Anand Varma, National Geographic Explorer and award-winning photographer. He and his uh, collaborators have just put together Invisible Wonders, Photographs of the Hidden World. We want to thank you so much for joining us this morning on Cool Science Radio. Thanks you so much, John. And that was our colleague, John Wells. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. We'll be speaking with Anissa Ramirez. A really great conversation with this very interesting female scientist when we return. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Materials. They are all around us, from the plastic in the pen we write with, to the metal in the chairs we sit on, to the semiconductors and chips that power our electronics. But how often, if ever, do we really consider the role of these and other materials in our lives and how they have affected us? Here to share with us the history of humans and the materials we've created is Anissa Ramirez, she is the author of The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. She's a PhD in materials science and engineering and, best part, a science evangelist. Anissa, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, in reading your book, you talk about how you suffered through the many dry, wonderless science courses that so many universities offer until you discovered material science. How did this new major reignite your love of science? Well, that's a great question. I love science from a very early age. And what motivated me was a program on PBS called 321 Contact. Uh, there was a segment of kids solving problems. And I had learned that they were using their brains, sort of like a scientist. And that really got me hooked. 
And then, as you said, I started taking classes. You know, grammar school was fine, high school was fine, but when I got to college, I felt that they were on a mission to eliminate anyone who may have a weak background. They call them introductory courses, but they're often called weed-out courses. So I was fortunate that in my sophomore year, I found this course called Material Science, which I likened to my home state of New Jersey because it's wedged between two more familiar entities. For Material Science, though, that's chemistry and physics. And it, it woke up that passion that was kind of buried under all those introductory courses. And it, remi it reminded me how cool science really is. Well, a lot of our listeners, including us, are very familiar with physics, chemistry, geology, but maybe we're not as familiar with materials science and engineering. Give us a little information on this intriguing topic. Well, I call myself an atom whisperer. And what I do is I try and learn as much as I can about atoms, and then I try and coax them to do new things. And so that's what material scientists do. And so all the things around us didn't look like that in their original shape. They came from the ground, they came from a tree, and folks called material scientists uh, had to figure out how to make them into new forms and also select the best material for things. We know that we shouldn't make a teapot out of chocolate. That's material selection. We know that you know we want to make sure something is frictionless when we're trying to move some things. So there's a lot of thought involved when it comes to making the materials around us. And, and, this, and this unsung tribe of people are called material scientists. It's really a fascinating field. And I'm, I'm curious as to why more people don't pursue it. It's, it's more about how our lives and science mix together and how the effect that science has on us and the effect that we also have on science. And you tell so many of these stories in your book. And I heard you tell the story about a glass blowing class that you decided to get involved with. And it kind of makes sense for someone like you who's interested in the, the shape shifting of materials and, and our effects on it and then their effects on us. Can you tell us that story? Sure. So it, it, it does seem obvious for someone my, like myself to take a glass blowing class, but I didn't do it until later in life because I'm also very much a chicken. I don't like to do very scary things. But I, I there was a glass blowing studio not far from my home. And uh, the instructor was great. He said, look, I, you know, I can see you're a little timid. So why don't you just make these glass vases, these very, very small vases, and you'll be fine. And I said, OK. And he also warned me, to be careful that not to drop the glass on the floor because it was hot enough to burn a hole in my shoe. And I said, okay. So every Wednesday night I would go and take, uh, make small vases and I was really, I really felt satisfied. But there was one day when I was leaving work and I was just in a really bad mood. Some really crappy things had happened at work. And so when I went to my glass blowing class, I wasn't the same timid individual I was before. I was very angry. And so I took out way too much glass I swung it, things that, you know, the more experienced people do. I was twirling it. I was doing all these, I was blowing huge bubbles. Usually my bubbles were as big as a golf ball and I was going for like softball sized bubbles. And uh, people said, hey, Anissa, the glass piece you're working on looks amazing. And I was like, yeah, it, it kind of does because I was making these small, tiny things for a series of classes. So I was feeling a little cocky. And I put the glass piece into the furnace and it stayed in there way too hot because uh, hot, way too long because when it came out, it was orange. That's really, really hot. And so I tried to manipulate it, but it was too hot and it fell off my pipe and landed on the floor. And again, I warned you that glass can start a fire. If you have a piece of paper next to hot glass, it will ignite. So my instructor saw this, 
ran over, had heat resistant gloves. He reattached it to my pipe. He put it into the furnace. He gave it to me. I didn't really know what to do with it because again, this was beyond my level of skill, but I put it over to the area where it cooled. And as it cooled and as I calmed down, I started to just do a little check-in with myself and I realized I wasn't in a bad mood anymore. And what did that? Uh, that was the glass piece. I was shaping it, but it actually shaped me. And so this is what put me on the journey to explore how other materials in history shaped humans. And so that's the subtitle of my book. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Anissa Ramirez, PhD. She's an award-winning scientist and science communicator. And her book is called The Alchemy of Us. And Anissa, I think even that word alchemy, so many of us associate it with perhaps something more mystical than scientific. And I'm wondering if you would explore the word for us, what it really means to you. Sure. Well, uh, many many scholars will say that alchemy is like the precursor, the originator of chemistry. And so where did it come from? People had this idea that if they can get common metals and synthesize them, combine them with other things, that they could eventually turn that metal into gold. So they, they had a desire to put more money in their pocket, essentially. And so they were systematic with what they combined with the, these base metals. They would write these things down. They would report out to other people. I tried this. I didn't get this, but I did get this. And so this became like the originating field for chemistry. Now, I call the book The Alchemy of Us because it's about materials and it's about transforming. And so people had the intention of transforming something that was kind of useless into gold. And what I wanted to show is that things that we kind of ignore, telegraph, computers, the light bulb, things that don't really come to mind, they actually had a hand in transforming us as well. It's just a wink to the old technology of alchemy, but it's also showing that this transformation process, although we're not creating gold, is very much part of our, our lives today because it's transforming us in ways that we don't even know. Well, in reading your book, Anissa, you talk so much about how the materials shape us. And there's a lot of deep history in this book. And you, as the Adam Whisperer, had to really switch hats to become a historian. How was that switch from material scientist to historian for you? And how did you do all this immense research? Well, thanks for noticing it. it. It is a lot of stories. It's a lot of history. And it's a lot of history that we commonly don't learn in our classroom. But I knew that I wanted to make material science interesting to people who don't even think about science. I actually wanted to write a book for people who are completely turned off by science. They had a bad teacher or somebody told them that they weren't good at it. And they're actually mad at science. And what I wanted to do is give them an, an invitation to come back into the world of science. And I knew the best way to do that was with stories. And I wanted to write a book that was nonfiction. So I had to go and dig in the archives and find these stories so that I can make it enticing and inviting to bring people back to the table in the world of science. And so I would spend days in foreign libraries. I traveled a lot. I went to England, Texas, California to go to different archives to read original papers that you don't find on Google so that they can find these stories about people who made these contributions. And for me, I was learning a lot. I felt angry that material science had left this out in my own education. So I felt like I was getting things that were missing in my understanding and was looking forward to the opportunity to share that with other people. Well, I've always been fascinated with how we have perceived time throughout time. And in your first chapter, you talk about 
the, I don't want to say invention of clocks, but but how the wires and the crystals actually helped make better clocks, which completely changed our perception of time at that time because people were living on their own rhythms. How did those clocks, those better clocks, affect everybody around them and humanity, basically? Well, we used to tell time by cues from nature. And one of the biggest cue was the position of the sun. And when it was directly overhead, that would be noon. So that means that if you live about 10 miles in one direction or the other, your noon would be a little different because it would take about two minutes for the sun to be overhead. And so there there were certain states that in the Midwest particularly where they had multiple time zones and it was based on having that position of the sun. And so once we got clocks and we uniformed time, then we were able to have appointments. I could say, meet me at 3.30, and you knew exactly what 3.30 that was. Before, it would be like, meet me at high noon, or meet me on Friday, and you would just wait until I showed up. So having a time cut into small intervals so that we could all relate to it allowed us to be able to interact with each other in new ways. We knew what time the factory started. We knew what time quitting time was. And so life began to to circle around the clock. And so that had some, that was a very subtle change. We don't know a life before that because that's the life we're in. But uh, before that, people didn't live the way we did in terms of keeping appointments and the like. I love that. It's funny how much we depend on time here at the radio station, for example, as we're an NPR affiliate. There is an exact second when national NPR comes on. And so we have to have our clocks very synchronized so that we don't step on each other. But the story about the woman who sells time is a really great one. I love that. Yeah, time used to be something much more elusive. And I remember when we called up the the operator. Did you ever do that dial zero? And right, say, right. What, what's the correct time? That seems so weird that we did that, right? Well, we still have a little bit of that, like television programs, particularly where I live on the East Coast, they'll say, you know, the time is 6.45 or something like that. And that's because long ago, before we had our cell phones, that's how we would set our clocks. We had those wind-up clocks. And so if you wanted to know, you know, they'd say, it's 8 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? They're not really, well, they are concerned about your children, but they're also giving you a cue to set your clock. So tell us briefly about that woman who would go and get the correct time and then sell it. Well, Ruth Belleville is one of my favorite characters, and she's the first person that you meet when you read The Alchemy of Us. And she had this fantastic job. She sold time. So in the late 1800s, if you needed to know the precise time, let's say that you ran a train or you were a clockmaker or you had a factory, there was no way for you to know the exact time unless you walked all the way to the Royal Observatory in England, which was the home of Greenwich Mean Time. They had very precise clocks. And you didn't have that luxury to make the three-mile journey. So what Ruth would do is every Monday, she would make her way over to the Royal Observatory with her precise chronometer, a type of clock, which she nicknamed Arnold. And Arnold's time would be compared to the master clock, and she would get a certificate noting the difference. Uh, They didn't change the clocks because they didn't want to wear out the wheels inside. And so then she would walk to all these various businesses, like the train stations and the factories and the lawyers' offices and and other businesses that needed to know the exact time. And for this unusual line of work, she was called the Greenwich Mean Time Lady. And she would sell time. And she had this subscription. You had to pay four pounds a year for her to come and visit you to give you the precise time. It's so fascinating to think about someone walking through town with a clock 
Well, <laughs> on our show, we talk a lot about light pollution, but we typically refer to it as outside, external, you know, the street lamps, our house lights, building lights. But you talk about in your chapter about carbon filaments and how that really increased light and the physiological harm it's doing to us. What is happening to us inside with all of these lights? So our eye has a special photoreceptor that detects blue light. And when it senses blue light, it shuts off melatonin that goes through our bodies. Melatonin is a chemical compound that tells all of our cells to go to sleep. And so when blue light is found by our eye, it shuts off the melatonin and so we're in daytime mode. Our body has two modes, daytime mode, our growth mode, and repair mode, nighttime mode. So it ends up that the type of light around us is very important. If we see blue light, then that puts us in growth mode. That is that growth hormones are flowing all throughout our bodies. And long ago, before Edison's light bulbs, people had bluer light from the sun, the sunlight, and then they would have a redder light from his incandescent lights or from candles. And then as lights began to develop, they actually leaned more towards the blue. So you and I live in a world where blue lights are pretty prevalent up until the time we go to sleep. And so as a result, our body is awash in growth hormones most of the time, and that's going to cause our bodies to change. Now, one thing that scientists at NIH has found is that we are slightly taller than our ancestors. And that's because the growth mode that I just mentioned allows our cells to grow. So we're slightly taller and there's many factors that are part of that, you know, better nutrition and cleaner water, but one of them is the lights. But there's also some darkness to the fact that uh, we, we are awash in growth hormones all the time. And that is that our bodies will grow and not in necessarily ways that we want. And so researchers have found that there is a certain population of people who have a higher risk for certain ailments such as obesity, cardiovascular disease, and some forms of cancer. And it has to do with when they work. They work at night under the, the electric lights. So yes, light pollution is a big deal outside. It affects nature and fireflies, and I talk about that in some detail, but it also, the type of light that we have inside is also important because it's affecting us. Well, you talk about all these materials and how they've affected humanity and not always in the best ways, like we were just talking about with light, but are we developing new materials to offset the damage from the previous materials? I don't think that a lot of people think about that. A lot of material scientists think about that. I mean, we do have, so let's, long ago, we, when we made the atom bond, we had all this toxic material. And so we had to make new materials to store that atom bomb toxins. And so there's certain glasses and clays that have been made to store that. And then they stuff that into a deeply into a mountain. So those things happen. But most material scientists are very forward thinking. I mean, they, they may want to be looking at materials that make our world more greener, but it's not to remedy something that's happened in the past. That's not the common thinking. And it's a uh... You know, you have quite an enviable life, career, set of universities that you have collected throughout the years. Your undergraduate at Brown, graduate uh, degree at Stanford, you've taught at Yale. And I think the story of you is nearly as interesting as the story of alchemy. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm wondering how you, you know, what what was your trajectory? I know you were interested in, in science as a young person. Now you call yourself a science evangelist. And I'm wondering what drives you and how you have how you've been so successful in what you've done. Well, that's very kind of you to say. And I and my mother would be very happy to hear that. But I, I really 
really see myself as a kid from Jersey who loves science and wants to share it. And so the first journey was to learn as much science as possible. And so that was going to Brown and then going to Stanford. And you know, when you're when you're in these degrees at Stanford or any graduate degree in science, they push you towards being a professor because that's the natural, that's the natural outcome. And so I followed that path. I I was a scientist at Bell Laboratories and then I was a professor at Yale. But what I learned in my own journey is that there's many ways to become a scientist. You can be a public-facing scientist, and that's what I've chosen today. So the, the path may look enviable, but it's really about gaining the skills to learn about, a lot about science and then really thinking about how I can make impact in the world. And so that's sort of making that U-turn that I've done now, which is in writing books and giving public lectures about science. Well, and sorry to bring up the negative side of all this, but there's been quite an assault on science recently. How do you as a science evangelist deal with that? That's a very good question. You know, we we learned that science was not embraced, particularly in the age of COVID. Um, and I think my ilk, those science communicators, we need to do a little bit better a job. And not only science communicators, but scientists as well uh, need to do a better job of reaching to the general public. And that's not something that's generally pushed in the world of the academy if you're studying the sciences. In fact, if you're doing things that are outward facing, you're considered to be a weaker member of science. And, and what we've learned just from the last couple of years is that it's not weakness, it's actually necessary to be able to explain what we're doing and make people feel comfortable with science and make them feel comfortable with asking questions so that they can take medicines and do things that are best for them. Because when the general public does not feel comfortable with science and you have a scientist that says, do this, do that, people are gonna push back and that's what we've seen. But if we engage and make them feel like, okay, I worked on this and this is the reason why I've done this. What do you think? Oh, that's a good idea. I think I'll take that. I mean, that's that's a different position to take, a different posture to have with the public. And I think scientists could do a better job of that. Um, we need to be more outward facing. And so that's the work that I'm doing, but I'm only one person. But I think the academy needs to just take a different posture in terms of how it connects to the general public. I think it's great that there has been so much emphasis on science communication, especially around, you know, high level scientists like yourself. But also, I think the public has a responsibility to be more curious and want to know more. What would you tell just the regular lay person? How would you tell them to become more engaged? What What do you think our role is in understanding science? That's a good question. And, and I, I really give the general public a pass. I don't think it's their fault. I think it's the way that we present science. Science has moved to science as entertainment. Hey, I blew this thing up and I popped this. I mean, if you look at the YouTube videos, it's not moving the knowledge needle. It's really about if you want to gain likes and, and things like that, it's really about blowing stuff up. And so that doesn't really that doesn't make people understand science more. And, and before YouTube, it wasn't like that, but science had been leaning towards this entertainment point of view. But we need to tell better stories as I do in The Alchemy of Us. We need to show people how we fail because we often present like, well, this is the final answer and aren't I, look how bright I am. That's not what we should do. It's like, all right, this is the final answer and it took me 40 tries. Let me, you know, and no one's really excited about that, but it shows, that it's a natural process, it's a human process, and it's not about being super smart. Sometimes it's about being perse uh, having perseverance, which people need to hear. So I give the general public a pass. It's not their fault. I think it's the way that science is being presented. People feel like someone is super smart and that they figured it out all the time and they see all this whiz-bang things and they don't really understand it and so they don't feel engaged. That's not the public's 
fault. That's the way that people are presenting it. Well, I still think we should be a little bit more curious in our daily lives. I, I agree. I mean, <laughs> I, I would I would say that, you know, when something breaks, don't just throw it out. Take it apart. Well, unplug it first, but take it apart and see what's inside. Like, be curious because, but it, like I said, I, I really think that curiosity has been, been squelched because we're so we're so focused on these stories, perpetuating these myths and feeling, and, and there's a reason why products are, we're disconnected from our products because then you won't feel compelled to fix it. You'll feel compelled to buy it. So this, this is, I think this is coming from something higher up. I am very curious about the um, developments in material science. Anything new that's being developed that our listeners would like to know about? Oh, there's there's lots of new things, and I I don't have my finger on the pulse, and some of it isn't sexy. Like new batteries is definitely a hot topic, but that's not sexy. But there are materials that can make something invisible. Harry Potter's cloak, yeah, that's a possibility. Now it's not huge; it's not all of Harry Potter. It's just Harry Potter's hand at this point. Things that are coming from science fiction are actually starting to become science fact, and those materials are called metamaterials. And what they do is they play with light; they they guide light. So I can see something because something bounces on a surface, and then that thing goes into my eye. But if if light goes around that surface and it never goes to my eye, my eye never sees it, so I don't see it, so it's invisible. So it's playing with light. So there's there's a lot of funky things that are going on that you'll you know you'll hear about in about five years. Anissa Ramirez, thank you so much. The book is The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And I have to tell you, it was fascinating to hear, to read about the history and really how much all of the little tangible objects around us have transformed our own personal lives and transformed us as humans. Well, Anissa Ramirez, she's a PhD in material science engineering, author, and science evangelist. We will include links to your website and the book on our show. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, I really liked Anissa Ramirez. She's so inspirational about going for what, you, what you're interested in. Yeah, and especially her book, The Alchemy of Us, is such a fantastic history lesson mm -hmm. of our well-intentioned materials creation, but also some of the counter effects of what we create and hasn't always been the best outcome. Mm, yeah, it's so interesting. Looking forward to it. I'm going to try to make this my beach vacation book as I'm going on vacation soon. You think I can do it? It's a big book, but <laughs> you'll be, you'll be well endowed with knowledge when you come back. That's right. <laughs> Good. Well, stay with us. Uh, we are actually going to preview next week for Cool Science Radio, we are going to interview the most interesting mathematician and statistician you will ever talk to. His name is Kit Yates, and he joins to discuss his new book, How to Expect the Unexpected. I know that sounds like Cole Sports tagline, but it's a book <laughs> by Kit Yates, and uh, it's all about the surprising science that undergrids our predictions. Yeah, it was so, a great interview. Yep, and then we'll speak with local resident Karen Strauss. She spent her career in the nuclear energy arena, and she's going to be joining us to talk about that. And then um, after that, after Thanksgiving, because we won't be here for Thanksgiving, we will be talking with Andrew Milner. He was the lead paleontologist for the discovery of the fossils 
in the lower levels of Lake Powell. So when the water had decreased, they stumbled upon these brand new fossils, rarely found, and they had a very limited amount of time to extract those fossils and get them out before the water rose. And then we'll also be talking with Jim Steinberg. He is a professor of atmospheric sciences at the U, and he teaches a class called The Secrets of the Greatest Snow on Earth. So if, we all, if you ever wondered why our powder is so fantastic, tune in on the 30th. That's good. We all have those myths about why our powder is so fantastic, but Jim Steinberg is the guy, mm-hmm. and he's really interesting to talk to.